Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. Now look, guys, you may know, I have a TV show. It's called Adam Ruins Everything as well, and it airs on True TV, but right now it's in reruns. But, you say, you haven't seen it? Well, I can help you out. You can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Everything or the Watch True TV app. And the first episode will premiere on August 23rd. We got 14 big episodes coming for you this fall. August 23rd they start. Don't miss them. And on that show, I interview fascinating experts, but just for like a short amount of time. It's just a 21-minute TV show. I only got like a minute to talk to them. So here on this podcast, we bring them in and we talk to them for a much longer period of time, 45 minutes. An hour, perhaps. Oh, it's so much fun. And we really are able to get into some of the deep implications of their work. Today's guest is Elizabeth Loftus. She is a pioneering researcher in the field of false memories. She appeared on the Forensic Science episode where we talked about uh, false memories in the context of witness testimony, eyewitness testimony. Not only did she practically invent the field of false memories, she's also testified in like over 250 trials in which she's helped to overturn false convictions of people who were falsely convicted based on eyewitness testimony. She is such an impressive person, and her work is so fascinating. It, like, cuts to the core of our self-identity. Like, what could be more personal to us than our memories and, like, our our recollections of our own lives? And her work calls all of that into question. It's, like, incredibly unsettling in the most exciting way. And uh, I'm just so excited to talk to her, and I hope you guys are too. Let's hear it. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. <laughs> uh, you are so wonderful. And by the way, very funny. I think you're one of the your punchline delivery on the show was one of my favorites all season. Uh, I think you go every time at the guy. It's my favorite. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well thank you. <laughs> uh, would you, uh, you know, on the show, we only talked about your ideas for about 90 seconds. I'd love to get a fuller picture of your, you know, incredible, incredibly long career and the fascinating work that you do. Can you tell me a little bit, just the boilerplate of uh, what your field of research is and, you know, what your areas of investigation are? I study memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an experimental psychologist, and my specialty is human memory. And when I meet people on an airplane or something and tell them that I study memory, they they usually, the first thing that comes to mind is some relative who's got Alzheimer's or mm. that they're losing their keys or they can't remember names. But I don't actually study that kind of memory problem. I, I study people who remember things that didn't happen. Right. You're specifically false memory. False memories, yes. And the, the sort of implication is that many, many of our memories are false, right? Or that the memory process is constantly changing or revising itself. Is that right? We, we like to talk about memory as being a constructive or reconstructive process rather than a process that involves, you know, playing a, a recording uh, back. Uh, the process is actually much more complex, and one can't really say how many of our memories are false. There probably is a lot of fiction sprinkled into, uh, you know, an otherwise uh, sometimes accurate memory. <laughs> right. I mean, I think we've all had that experience of, you know, we have those earliest memories from our lives, right? Like, I have a memory from when I must have been very young and it's the most minor memory was that I was standing up in my crib in my memory it's a crib and I saw my grandfather who must have been visiting in the hallway and he said go back to bed and that's the entire memory right Um, but I'm also aware that I've actively recalled that memory once or twice a year for every year of my life, you know, and that's maybe the only reason that I that I remember it. And so I have this question of am I actually remembering an event or am I remembering the prior time that I remembered that memory? And uh, have I revised it along the way? Is that sort of how the process works or? Well, I can't say about that specific one. I mean, there are lots (laughs) of depending on how old you think you were at the time that this happened, um, because we don't have concrete, reliable memories for things that happened in the first couple of years of life, right. we, we as adults. So if you're telling me about something that happened to you and you think you were one year old, then I don't, I don't believe it's a real memory. <laughs> I believe it's, some, it's something else. It's, uh, you saw a photograph of, of yourself when you were older or somebody told you about it or 
you've or you've just constructed it. So let's begin at the beginning. How how did you first become interested in this uh, field and this topic? I've got to go back many decades when I when I was in graduate school. I I, I actually went to Stanford for graduate school and. I did uh, some studies with one of my professors. I was doing very theoretical work on the on the subject of memory. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the kind of work that maybe you could talk to five other people about who would care about it as much as you did. <laughs> and at some point, I, I thought to myself, I really, really want to study something that has more obvious a practical applicability that, right. that applies to the real world in, in a more obvious way. And I made that decision after I was already out of graduate school and already teaching and and I had launched my career. And I decided then that one thing I might look at is the memory of witnesses to crimes and accidents and other significant events. And that's what I began to study. Mm -hmm. And in the course of studying people's memories for crimes and accidents, uh, I found that you could tamper with their memories very easily. You could ask a leading question, like how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, and and um, it would affect the way people remembered the accident. Right, ver- versus if you said uh, how fast were they going when they collided or how fast were they going when they bumped, if you said how fast were they going when they smashed, it sort of you know puts an image in the in the person's head that might sort of contaminate the original memory. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and you know, just in terms of the behavior that I was observing, if you use the word smashed rather than one of those m- more mild words like hit or bumped, uh, people told you the cars were going faster. And people also were more likely to tell you later on that they saw things like broken glass that would be consistent with a severe accident. So so these this questioning process... Uh, I concluded could contaminate or distort or transform the memory. And that led me into a a broader issue of what else can transform or contaminate memory. Right. There are lots of things in life, uh, having conversations with other witnesses, uh, watching news coverage about some event that we might have experienced. All of these can potentially distort or contaminate somebody's memory. That's so fascinating. I, I mean, yeah, it's such a thorny problem because obviously eyewitness testimony is one of the bedrocks of the legal system and of, of many other fields. Just, you know, the it sort of rests on this presumption that you can ask people what they saw and they'll tell you and it will be broadly accurate. But then – Honestly, what I what I like about your work is that it's it's on the one hand very counterintuitive that that our memories aren't as reliable as, as we think they are, but on the other hand, it's also very intuitive because if you you know, like I said in my own example, examining our own memories, there's often weird gaps or we are unsure about things or you know the number of memories that I feel like I have a very strong you know, sound, picture, sense, impression that I close my eyes, I can see them again is very, very small. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, our minds are actively processing that they would that they would somehow end up reshaping these memories. Um, it almost seems bizarre that we base so much of the legal system, right, a system that can determine life and death, that we uh, allow it to uh, come down to people's recollections. Well, we do. And and we're now finding out, as we see a, a growing number of cases of wrongful conviction, people who spent 10, 15, 20 years in prison before some new evidence like new DNA testing uh, revealed that they were actually innocent. When those cases have been analyzed, the major cause of those wrongful convictions is faulty human memory. Really? So I think that helps to um, make the point that this is a pretty important thing to be to be thinking about and to be studying and to be understanding. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, Chris Fabricant, who who was also on that episode from the Innocence Project, you know, sort of specializes in getting these sort of forms of bad science out of, you know, out of the uh, uh, legal system, like you know, bite mark analysis or or hair strand analysis, or these these sort of bad form, you know, c- quote CSI techniques, so because they cause wrongful convictions. But if you weigh that ag- against how many people must go to prison because of uh, false witness testimony, it must be it must be massively larger, considering how often I would imagine it would be used. Uh, well, yeah, and all of those things are important. Of course, and I, I, I'm glad that different scientists are are studying all parts of it. 
But human memory, you know, it's like we should think of it like trace evidence. It has to be protected and preserved uh, just the way you you need to do with blood samples. Wow. You know, in your perfect world, right, if we wanted to use uh, eyewitness testimony in a courtroom, is there a set of practices that you would, you know, if you could dictate, you know, police would use uh, with a witness, uh, what would they be? There's a a long list of things. Some of them have been... Uh, written about in a report by the National Academy of Sciences research arm, which is the National Research Council. There was a fantastic report that was issued just a couple of years ago, even less than a couple of years ago, in which some of the best practices uh, were were outlined. And so, for example, one thing that isn't done very often but should be done is what we call blind testing. Blind testing, where the person who, for example, conducts an identification test, the person who interacts with the eyewitness at a lineup, for example, should not know who the suspect is. (laughs) Right. And if we had that kind of blind testing where the detective did not know who who the suspect was, it would do a couple of, of useful things. First of all, the detective could not, even inadvertently, cue the witness, um, stare at the, you know, at the suspect or do something that might tip the witness off. But equally important, the detective can't give the witness feedback. If you give a witness feedback, like, good job, that that's the suspect you picked, or, well, that's the person whose fingerprints were found at the scene, some kind of feedback, you're, you're going to artificially increase the witness's confidence level and change their memory, make it, make it feel like it's stronger, uh, whether it's accurate or not. So uh, blind testing is just one example. Another example of a good practice, um, this one is a bit more common, is to say to the witness, you know, the person who committed the crime may or may not be in this lineup. And it's just as important that you exonerate the innocent as to find the guilty. So mm-hmm. don't feel pressure to pick someone. You you want an instruction like that that is going to remove this pressure that an eyewitness sometimes feels to solve the case, to pick someone and to close the deal. Right. And that's so fascinating because both of those techniques sound like those would come straight out of the psychology laboratory, right? That I mean, having the uh, the detective not know which of the suspects, or sorry, which of the people in the lineup is the suspect, that's just a classic double-blind uh, setup, right? Um, yes, exactly. And, and people understand that in medical experiments, uh, when, when there's a new drug being tested, it's exceedingly important that the doctor does not know whether the patient being examined got the drug or the placebo. Right. And it's not because we don't trust the doctor, uh, you know, to do something, but that there are these biases that creep in and the doctor might behave somewhat differently if the doctor thinks the patient got the drug rather than the placebo. Right. And and so similarly, uh, the detective who, who knows who the suspect is may do something differently than a naive uh, you know blind detective who who has no idea but those are those are just a few of the examples that you know each one might make a little bit of difference and they can all add up and maybe make a big difference right and you you've testified in uh, a huge number of cases uh, about this topic correct I have, yeah, over the over many decades, right. I have testified in several hundred trials, criminal trials, civil trials. Uh, right. I, I have a list that you worked on: Ted Bundy's trial, O.J. Simpson, Rodney King, Oliver North, Martha Stewart, very interesting one, uh, Louis Libby, Michael Jackson, the Oklahoma City bombing. Those are uh, that's really fascinating. Well, those are you know I didn't always testify ah. in those cases. Sometimes I, it was I was consulting on some aspect of the case. Mm-hmm. You know, those happen to be some of the more you know well known people, but they're also plenty of and mostly just ordinary citizens who got caught up in in some messy situation and 
their lives and the lives of their extended families were were severely uh, damaged. Of course, yeah, that's uh, that's really striking because I mean there are so many uh, you know obviously there are, there are many scientists who I think have the motivation to uh, you know correct inaccuracies or to improve the world, but I I think it's so rare and remarkable for uh, you know a scientist to, to then go enter the the field directly you know sort of step out of the lab and into uh, the place where these things have an impact and, and impact it directly. Do you feel that the, the culture around eyewitness testimony has, has you know, changed or improved in those 25 years that you've been doing this? You know, we have been, we've been worrying about wrongful conviction and we've been worrying about best practices for many, many decades. I and other uh, scientists who are, work in the same field have been writing about uh, these problems at least since the late 70s, the 1970s. Wow. But it really took DNA and the DNA exonerations that proved that these hundreds of people were actually innocent uh, for both law enforcement and other citizens um, to realize we, we have to do something. And eyewitness testimony is a major culprit. And I think with with the realization brought about by those advances in technology, we've started to see a a serious interest in in looking for reforms that can be implemented to reduce this problem. Right, because once DNA testing came out, you could almost get incontrovertible proof that, well, not nothing's incontrovertible, but, you know, sort of the hardest proof possible that there was a wrongful conviction made. Exactly. I mean, yeah, DNA is pretty good. It's not perfect, and every now and then there's contamination. But uh, <laughs> but in 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 these DNA exoneration cases, it's fairly ironclad. Now, another uh, topic that I'm really quite interested in is uh, the uh, you know your career touches on is uh, repressed memories and that topic. Um, I remember. Uh, Specifically, well, actually, I was a little bit young when it happened, um, but that there was almost a that there was a spate of repressed memory cases in the eighties. Am I correct on the time frame? Okay, in the eighties <laughs> is when we had the child cases, those daycare cases like right. McMartin. So it you know it was nineteen eighty three that uh, the McMartin case blew up in in California. Those involved young children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, most of those have, have sort of fallen apart as people realize that many innocent people got dragged through the mud of those, you know, accusations. And uh, it was people, and please correct me on any details, it was uh, uh, adults through therapy. Well, no, of... but then later. Oh. La- it, was, it was later, you know, my first repressed memory case that I, uh, you know, ever saw was a murder case uh, that was about 1990, mm-hmm. where a woman claimed that uh, she saw her father kill her best friend when she was eight years old, and that she repressed the memory for 20 years, and now uh, the memory had come back to her. So she contacted the police and said that she saw her father kill her best friend, and father got prosecuted, father got convicted. Wow. Uh, and eventually, this was called, you know, the Franklin case. The defendant was George Franklin. Eventually, a federal judge uh, overturned that conviction uh, after Franklin had spent more than five years in prison. Wow. And this was when she was a child, her friend had actually been killed. She had no memory of it for 20 years. Or so she had no, she never exhibited this memory. And then 20 years later, she said, wait, I now remember my father killing my friend. Exactly. And so, you know, those cases are a little different than the, what we sometimes call the kiddie cases, like hmm. like McMartin, where the kids are, you know, three and four years old. In the Franklin case, you know, she was 28 years old uh, when she said, came forward and said she repressed her memory for 20 years of having witnessed her father kill her little eight-year-old best friend. Right. So those repressed memory cases actually really took off in the early 90s. Got it. So the distinction is between people having repressed memories, like children reporting repressed memories, and adults reporting repressed memories. Well, the, yeah, the children, uh, I don't know that they were using the term repressed memories I when see. they came forward and ended up saying that they'd been 
you know, molested and taken through tunnels and onto right. airplanes. That was part of a huge panic around Satanism as well, right? That there were people, you know, children reporting that they were involved in satanic rituals and things uh, like that. And saying, uh, Yes, and, and then, but of course, later then, some of these uh, adults would claim that they had recovered repressed memory of satanic ritual abuse, where they claimed that many members of the family had molested them in these satanic rituals and forced them to sacrifice animals and to to get Jeez. pregnant and to have babies that were then slaughtered and <laughs> you know the FBI investigated all this and never found any corroborating evidence one particular FBI agent really spoke out actively about these these accusations and how unsupported they were yeah and it was it was a bit of a nationwide panic and my understanding is that it was sort of what just a trend of unscrupulous therapists sort of like what what was happening to create the because there was no evidence for them and your contention your research found that repressed memories sort of don't exist i i believe well well, no let me just just to make the point please um in my opinion there is no credible scientific support for the kind of massive repression that was being claimed in these cases that was and so it if there was no credible scientific support for this where could these memories have come have be coming from mm-hmm. and i began to investigate sometimes in conjunction with actual cases that i was consulting on or individuals who I interviewed or talked to in preparation for articles I was writing or books I was writing. And, you know, I could tell you the sort of typical kind of way it happened. Please do. Um, you know, the let's say she goes into therapy. She, she's got an eating disorder, let's say, or she's depressed. And the therapist says, well, you know, in my experience, most people with those symptoms were sexually abused as a child. I wonder if something like that happened to you. And even when the patient denies that anything like that happened in her childhood, the therapist sometimes persists and uses techniques to try to uncover these supposedly buried trauma memories. And in the process of using those techniques, these constructed things that felt to the patient like they were memories got got produced. And there were thousands of these cases. Um, all over North America, Incredible. and then and then the technique spread to other parts of the world, as North American mental health professionals were invited to speak and deliver their ideas and so, supposed wisdom to uh, members of the mental health community in other parts of the world. You you began to s- see this spread, and the and the patients are left with. I mean, they they are utterly convinced of the incident. Like, can can they sort of report? Oh, it it looked like this. It felt like that, and and that sort of thing. Oh yes, they they can sometimes be exceedingly detailed and and confident. They can be emotional and cry when they tell you the about these things that they think happened to them, and they act on them. You know that they the, the families get torn apart. The the whole family structure is now all estranged, and and sometimes these accusers then go and either sue the accused, their father or former neighbor or former teacher, former dentist, former anybody. Wow! Uh, and so it, it it can ruin a lot of a lot of lives. What one interesting thing that also happened is a number of these women at some point began to realize their memories were false. Hmm. And from the point of view of somebody who studies memory, this is kind of a fascinating thing. How do you how do you how do you start to realize that your memories are false? Right. And one one thing we discovered is in some of these cases their insurance ran out. Huh. Their so their health insurance. <laughs> so they were no longer in the clutches of the therapist that was you know, had helped them generate this in the first place and continue to reinforce it. Right. And many of those um, patients, after discovering their memories were false, they sued their former therapists for huh. planting false memories. So this uh, psychological legal mess just played itself out in all kinds of ways uh, in the legal system. And, you know, who benefited from all this? Well, the, the lawyers benefited right. because they, they got to handle the legal cases, but the patients didn't, and need, neither did their families or 
those uh, who were practicing this questionable therapy. Did this trend sort of die out, or is this still happening? No, it hasn't died out, unfortunately. Oh, no. uh, first of all, it's it's rearing its ugly head in, in some new parts of the world. I, I actually, not too long ago, you know, had a case in Portugal and had another case in Israel. So, you know, we're seeing th- these kinds of accusations now emerging in some in some other parts of the world. But what what makes people feel that it might have died out? Yeah, yes, there's less of it, and and but the media isn't covering it the the way they once did. The mm. media covered this issue and the memory wars, as we called them, wow. so extensively. You know, it, it, they lost interest in it. It now takes somebody really, really famous to do the accusing, or somebody really, really famous to be accused for it to get back in the news. Right. Yeah, it was a media panic as much as anything else uh, at the time. Well, that helped it. So a question that immediately comes to mind when talking about this is that, you know, especially in cases of of sexual abuse, uh, you know, the message that, that is uh, very, very prominent right now is that, you know, you want to default to believe the, you know, the accuser, right? The person who experienced the, the trauma or the abuse and that that should be sort of a principle that we should uh, go on. And, you know, there's a perception that, you know, rape cases especially are, are you know, very easy to uh, get out of that. It's, that it's hard for uh, women to prove their cases. Uh, so, you know, I find this uh, and, you know, I want to try to be on board with that uh, with that program because it it certainly is, uh, you know, that that to me seems to be the ethical course of action. Yet this phenomenon interacts with that in some, you know, uncomfortable ways. Um, is is there any, you know, tools that we can use to parse, you know, the distinction here or? Well, I'm not sure of that. I mean, you know, obviously, if you want the fuller history, we can go way back, you know, to the 50s or so when the stories of of genuine uh, victims, women, children, even men, were not as believed. And then the pendulum kind of swung so far in the other direction that um, you have all the, you know, these innocent individuals getting caught in the nets uh, along with the guilty and I, I, no, I think this is something as a society we're just going to have to sort out because it's painful for people to be assaulted and not be believed, but it's also painful for people to be accused of something so serious when they're innocent. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's such a it's such a thorny issue. It's it's something that that I you know you uh, I always feel very trepidatious about you know about wading into, but the the phenomenon is so is so powerful, um, and it really cuts so deeply to our notion of ourselves. I mean, when you talk about a person you know uh, crying when they recount an experience that they can recount it very vividly with a lot of detail, it naturally leads to the question: Well, wait, I've I have memories like that. That make me cry when I think about them. That I that I recount this way. Like, how can I be certain of them? It it it's an inherently sort of destabilizing uh, set of revelations to to know that this phenomenon is possible. I know it makes people very uncomfortable. This this is in part why my scientific work is you know met with controversy because people don't really feel very comfortable with the idea that they may be walking around with chunks of things that feel like memories, but that just aren't true. It makes people very uncomfortable. But I, I don't know. I think we, you know, maybe we need to, you know, accept the fact, live with it, figure out how to minimize the chance that it'll be damaging, and maybe even figure out how we might harness this malleable nature of memory to do some good for people. Right. Yeah, that you've, I understand that, that that's a topic that you've worked on, that the, the idea of the therapeutic benefit of malleable memory, can you speak to that at all? Sure. I mean, I, it, what, one of the things that I uh, was, got interested with my collaborators in, in studying is, is this question, if I plant a false memory in your mind, does it have repercussions? Does it affect your later thoughts, your later intentions, your later behaviors. And one of the ways that we studied this was to plan a false memory that you got sick eating a particular food as a child. Mm -hmm. So we made people believe and remember they got sick eating eggs or they got sick eating pickles or they got sick eating strawberry ice cream. 
And we found people didn't want to eat these foods as much. Hmm. Uh, and, and then we could also plan a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food, and people want to eat the food more. Hmm. So I started to think about this memory, this sort of mind technology, as a way of possibly helping people get to a point where they could live a, a healthier life, <laughs> maybe make a dent in the obesity problem in our society. Right. And, and you know, and I, I think there's a potential there, although it's, it, it's fraught with ethical issues about... <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, to say the least, you know, <laughs> that that's a need to be sorted out. But, you know, as a scientist, I can talk about, you know, what the evidence shows and what, what's possible, but the, the rest of the world has to decide what what kind of a world we want to live in. Right. Well, well. first let me ask you this, because I, I want to touch on that in a second, but first I, I'm sure people want to know, how do you go about planting the memory that, say, a particular food made you sick? Well, okay, so in the food studies, what we do, if you were to come to my uh, laboratory, you would come in one day and you'd fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires. You'd fill out questionnaires that asked you about your personality and asked you about your thoughts about food. Just a long list of questions and items. Then you'd come back a week later and we would tell you that we fed all of your data into our really smart computer program <laughs> that determined that certain things probably happened to you as a child. Hmm. So then we might say to you, you know, okay, as a young child, you know, our really smart computer program has determined that you, you disliked spinach. You know, a couple of things that we think are true of, of most kids or many kids. And then the key item, the one we're trying to plant, uh, it looks like you got sick sometime eating strawberry ice cream. Now, when might that have happened if you if you don't remember it now? when When might it have happened and where might you have been and how would you have felt? So that's the way um, in this line of work that we plant the false memory with this false feedback from our supposed really smart computer. And then we can find people who fall for the suggestion, who develop a false belief or a false memory. And later on, we'll give them an opportunity to tell us what they want to eat at a party or we'll put some food in front of them and see how much of it they eat. And we can get people to be less likely to eat the food after they've developed a false belief or a false memory. Wow. So that's a little bit more detail about the process of using false feedback as a mind-altering technique. So you sort of say, and similar to the example with the therapist from earlier, you sort of say, oh, in my experience, many people like you had this experience when this happened to you, what was it like or what year was it? And then if they – some people presumably say, oh, that never happened to me. But ones who uh, sort of fall for it say, well, oh, then, I guess it would have been uh, when I was nine years old. And they start filling in details or – Yeah, well, I mean, in fact, some of the therapists use and, and you know proudly admit that they use guided imagination. You don't remember anybody molesting you? You know, often people will, will repress their memories. And if you just close your eyes – and who might have done this to you? Wow. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe daddy. And how old might you have been? Well, maybe I would have been, you know, six or eight. Or And where might this have happened? That guided imagination can lead people to have false memories. Wow. That rem you know, you know what it really strikes me as uh, reminding me of is cold reading the the technique that you know fake psychics use to you know say oh uh, you, so, you know someone in your life died it was it was a name starting with J correct uh, that that sort of question answer pattern just uh, I don't know if there's actually a commonality but it strikes me as similar yeah I'm not sure I know enough about the cold reading to to know exactly how they end up sliding their target <laughs> you know into <laughs> This yes. spot where they they believe they're dealing with something real when it's all, a, you know, yes. a, a kind of a magic trick. Well, we have to take a very short break. Please stick around because we got a lot more with Elizabeth Loftus right after this. Hey, you work hard. You play harder. You look great and you smell fantastic. You deserve a vacation where you can kick back, hone your creativity, enjoy incredible comedy performances, and make some new lifelong friends in a maybe haunted inn in the Poconos Mountains. We've got The Adventure Zone, JJ Go, Joe Firestone's Friends of Single People, plus 
Stand up from Aparna Nancherla, Phoebe Robinson, Kevin Avery, Joel Kim Booster, and way more. Join us for Max Fun Con East, September 2nd through 4th. There are only 10 rooms left, so head to maxfuncon.com and nail down your tickets today. Like now. Do it. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am here talking to Elizabeth Loftus, a professor at University of Irvine who studies human memory and who appeared on a forensic science episode. Well, so getting back to the ethical implications, I mean, I could certainly see the, you know, simply therapeutically if if someone had an extremely difficult trauma that you want to try to alleviate perhaps uh, by, you know, planting a benign memory or something like that. I mean, I, I could at least see the argument for it. Uh, I, but I think what would probably worry people is that I, I at least have the sense that uh, the actors in society who have the most sophisticated use of psychology are generally uh, marketers and advertisers that uh, just, for instance, in the food industry, they're so sophisticated at getting people to eat and, you know, without thinking and that, you know, that that sort of you know behavioral psychology. And so even when you talk about planting a memory in order to uh, change what someone eats, that's the first thing that I think of. Although I, I can't imagine how uh, Nabisco would would go about planting a memory in me. But well, that's funny, because when when we did our asparagus study, when we published the asparagus study where we planted a warm, fuzzy memory about asparagus. People want to eat more asparagus. I actually got a call from one of the major, you know, wholesaler retailers of, of vegetables and fruits in this country uh, saying, I'm, I wonder if you could help us. We have certain vegetables that people just don't think they like and don't want to eat. And maybe you, you can make them like them more. I mean, like, <laughs> like leeks and, uh, and well, the uh, the company, I said, well, we could do a study, see if we could get you know people to want to eat more leeks. But you'd have to fund the study, and they did offer to give me all the leeks I might need, but uh, not to pay for the rest of the scientific work, which involves research assistants and subjects and equipment. And wait, their only pitch was they're like, maybe you could help us figure out how to sell more leeks, and their only pitch was we'll give you free leeks to do the study with. <laughs> Well, yeah. So I, I, we never, we never went, we never went forward with the idea. Well, but. They should just advertise soup. I think if they want people to eat leeks, that, that's pretty <laughs> yeah. much all it's used for. Um, are there cases where I think I can think of a few where, like, uh, multiple people in society all remember the same, the same false thing happening, like sort of collective societal false memories? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, it sometimes happens. Um, when you have a high publicity event, like a plane crash or something, and uh, and somebody gets interviewed on television or radio or in the newspaper, or whatever, other witnesses come forward and can pick up that version and adopt it as their own. Mm-hmm. That is exactly the phenomenon that we study in our in some of our memory distortion. Uh, experiments. We call this the misinformation effect. People will pick up misinformation from other places and other people and adopt it as their own memory. And that's how you get lots of people thinking they saw a missile mm-hmm. uh, that brought down the, the plane in New York when, in fact, there was no missile. Or I think I have an example, uh, the uh, Donald Trump remembering he saw Muslims cheering on 9-11. Is that, is that a... So, uh, you know, how does that happen? I mean, and, and of course, that's one person, but yeah. other people, well, other people other said, people oh, I maybe remember come it too. forward and say, you know, I remember seeing that, too. Well, Which they could be in that case, yeah. taking bits and pieces of what they heard from other places and times. And, and maybe they have a, a motivation to want to support him and his unlikely memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they start to believe it themselves. Uh, or, you know, I think about Kate, I remember when we were shooting your episode, uh, I believe unless unless it was earlier and I'm misremembering um, that uh, Brian Williams is, uh, you know, was being portrayed as, as him lying uh, was in the news. And I remember uh, thinking about your work and thinking, wait, this this could have been a false memory that he sort of accidentally arrived at by himself through the process of maybe storytelling or continual revision. Um Absolutely. And I, I followed that whole story very closely um, and, you know, actually have, have lectured about it and took the position that, uh, you know, this could well be uh, a constructed 
memory. And you don't have to assume that he's out and out deliberately lying. You know, I got a lot of flack from people who, you know, insisted that he, you know, we should call him Pinocchio and Mm -hmm. that lying was the only explanation that they were going to believe. But, you know, to me, it, it made a lot more sense that he he was actually believing that he had these experiences when he talked about them many times than that he would deliberately lie when it was something that would be so easy to check right uh yeah what what other explanation would there be than than that just his memory sort of drifted it's hard to it's hard to imagine it being a being a sort of deliberate falsehood uh i mean you know uh, stranger things have happened but still it seems like the simpler explanation would be the faultiness of memory right well and in his case it was a drift mm-hmm. you know he, he his final version was he, his helicopter was attacked by rocket fire uh, but you know a few years earlier he was saying that he saw another helicopter be attacked by rocket fire and what actually happened is there was a helicopter that was attacked, but he arrived on the scene maybe 30 to 60 minutes after hmm. some completely different helicopter had been, ta- uh, you know, attacked. And so his his memory, if if this was a massive memory distortion, it, it kind of drifted in stages. Right. And maybe through that same process of... You know, again, like I said, my oldest memories are things that I've repeatedly remembered, and it it still seems as though I have the sense that when I'm remembering them, I'm remembering my previous memory of the memory, <laughs> and that it seems like it has that opportunity of like repeated storytelling. Yeah, and 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 you have to keep in mind that we do take into account our audience when we tell a story. Right. There's something called audience tuning. So if you tell the story one way for this audience and a a slightly different way because you want to be, you know, more interesting or more empathetic or more something, you tell it slightly differently to a different audience, you you know, you can you can change your memory that way by Mm -hmm. telling the story differently. I have two uh, I have two questions to to end with. One is, uh, you know, there's a lot of news lately about police conduct, uh, you know, in uh, uh, you know, high tense situations. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about police body cameras and about recording everything all the time. And I'm very curious about whether you would consider that a positive development or not, you know, in, in terms of an upgrade over uh, eyewitness testimony, if this sort of ubiquitous recording is uh, is better or worse. Uh, well, I, I I think those body cameras are going to be important but you have to keep in mind that they're not going to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. They're going to just tell the story of what's at the focus of the camera. They're not going to tell the story of what's going on in the periphery, what other people are doing that are outside of the focus. So, you know, we'll still need other information besides the products of those those body cameras mm-hmm. one one very interesting issue that's uh, that's come up that i've thought about uh, quite a bit is whether the um officer who's involved in some kind of officer involved shooting for example should view the the videotape before writing a report hmm. or whether that officer should write a report without having looked at the video you know, there, there, there's a big debate about that, uh, you know, going on right now about what, you know, what should happen. And so we've been thinking about the, you know, how the basic science of memory might bear on answering that question. That's real. That's a really interesting question, because, yeah, if they wrote the report before, well, then they're sort of, you know, it's maybe going to be the less objective version to a certain extent but if they write it afterwards if they're only getting a limited view their memory could be contaminated and maybe you'd prefer to have the even if it's the the subjective version the fresh version i can see the argument going both ways you can see yes you can see it and it's really a it's really an interesting and complicated issue that's really fascinating um actually uh, let me ask you this first is there any particularly striking case of a of a false memory in a witness that that really jumps out at you that that's a... well i th- I think the brian williams case is a is a pretty amazing example that he 
he could come up with a um, memory of being in a helicopter that was attacked by by rocket uh, <laughs> fire. He tried to apologize for this, but uh, you know, as you may know, he was suspended without pay from his ten million dollar a year job. Right. So I, I've, I've sometimes referred to this as the $5 million memory mistake because he was suspended for six months. Wow. He is back on TV somewhat and not quite as, um, not, not quite that same position. Right. But the, you know, the world has not been as nice to him as, as they have been to Hillary Clinton, for example, who did something kind of analogous when she said that she landed under sniper fire in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, video coverage uh, would show that it was a very peaceful greeting ceremony and there was no <laughs> sniper fire. Uh, and, you know, in her case, she said she, uh, she said something wonderful. She said, I made a mistake. I had a different memory. That proves I'm human. Yeah. Uh, it seems like that's the main thing that we need is a, is an understanding of memory as being a human process that's flawed when uh, we have sort of this mistaken idea of it as like this perfect lockbox or perfect recording device, uh, which right. uh, which makes us both privilege our own memories too much and be too judgmental of other people whose memories fail. Right. Well, and that's why in, in my um, in my TED talk, I I likened a memory to a Wikipedia page mm-hmm. in the sense that you can go in there and edit it, but so can other people. And that's what we have to keep in mind. The I think the interesting thing about it is that, you know, I've always had this image of uh, my own past as being something that I've recorded. That I'm moving forwards in time, but my past is still with me in the form of this sort of like long scroll I can maybe read. You know, um, that memory is somehow like a window into the past that we can see the past through it. Whereas now, after encountering your work, I, I think of it more that you know I'm just always in the present. I always exist in the present, and there's an impression left on my mind of the past. You know, like uh, my brain has been impacted by it, but it's purely an object of the present. Does that make sense that things that are happening to me now are revising that past experience and that it's somehow it's so odd because I I somehow feel like dissociated from my own past self in a way. Well, that's beautifully put that things that are happening now are are changing our past. Mm hmm. You know, again, talking about personal memory, you know, I'm having the experience now of, you know, I'm I'm sort of doing therapy for the first time in my life and I'm getting a lot out of it. And a lot of it talks about, you know, I'm talking about things that happened to me uh, in my youth that I haven't thought about for years. You know, I'm uh, sort of exhuming those, uh, you know, bodies and, and uh, well, that's a little bit graphic. I'm, <laughs> I'm exhuming yeah. those, those treasures and I'm holding them up to the light and, and uh, you know, seeing how I feel about them and seeing how they impacted me. And and. I have the sense that I'm arriving at a truer version of myself and that I'm, uh, you know, understanding myself more and, and improving myself by so doing. But uh, there's, I guess now there's that worry that that those are not true things that I'm that I'm looking at. How do, how do you, uh, you know, work with that in your own life? Uh, well, in my own life, I think I, I mean, I, I think First of all, I tend to be more skeptical than most people. <laughs> so when I'm reading about some accusation that comes out in the in the newspaper, you know, I wonder is this really true? I just don't immediately accept it uncritically and and uh, you know, I have I have a kind of healthy skepticism. But I think the other thing that you know, is useful for me and may, might be useful for some other people is that it, it's given me a certain tolerance. I see people around me make all kinds of mistakes and I don't have to immediately assume they're deliberately lying. Right. They could have a false memory. And that is is just, a, I think, a better way to feel about people. Right. Yeah. It, it gives you it gives you a lot more empathy for them. Um, but do do you feel that you have a different, and maybe the answer is no, do you, do you feel that you have a different relationship with your own personal history than most because of your work in this, in this area? Do you have a different relationship with your own memories of your past? Oh, that's a very personal question. I don't, I'm not sure I can, you know, answer that as a, <laughs> as a general question. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated when I get caught in a mistake that I'm unaware of. Right. I remember, you know, once being interviewed about an important legal case and telling the journalist that, you know, I, I 
and I rushed out of the courtroom and got into a taxi. And then a, a few weeks, you know, earlier I had said I rushed out of the courtroom and got into a car that they had waiting for me. And the, the journalist said, well, you know, you, you said something different two weeks ago. And I thought I did. <laughs> well, now which one is it? And why, why did it change? I mean, so I, you know, I'm probably a little more fascinated than, right. uh, than the average person with, with errors that creep in and want to understand why they're there. Right. I guess what what I, I find unsettling about about the idea and, and uh, I imagine others might as well is that it, it seems to uh, interfere with our capacity for self-knowledge that, uh, you know, we do want to think that our own lives and our own experiences are the things that we know better than anything else. And uh, your work sort of implies, well, uh, it doesn't. It's very it's very imperfect. And so it sort of gives you that that who am I feeling, you know, uh, that that's all. It's less a question than an observation. But I, I, I don't know. No, it, 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 that's deep. That's very deep. <laughs> Who are we? I mean, because we are, our, we are in some sense a set of memories. But if they're evolving and and changing, then 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 who are we? Right. It makes it makes my feeling of myself be more of the present again, I guess, than of the past. That rather that I'm, you know, less the sum of my experiences and more the, the this sort of you know brain moving around in the present. I suppose. But but it is interesting to think about you, you know, dredging up the past in therapy today. You know, in therapy today, as a grown-up, successful, you know, Hollywood, you know, <laughs> actor. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you, thank you. How can you understand, you know, what little Adam really went through when he was 10 years old? When you're judging it and trying to remember it through your current eyes, Right, it's it's such a fascinating question. I mean, that's that's what I'm actively trying to do in those sessions, and it, and it sort of raises the the question of if I can or if I'm just sort of operating on an an idea that I have in my in my head, which I suppose I'll continue to do, and that's and that's maybe the most that you know maybe that's enough if the if the benefit is is purely therapeutic, but thinking about it that way makes it seem more like a another person than ever, or or a, or a fantasy that I'm imagining. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I'll I'll leave it there. That's yeah. That, well, let's let's leave it there because this is uh, this is deep. <laughs> well, that's where I like to try to take it, and I and I appreciate you uh, uh, treading into those waters with me. And um, your I mean your work is your work is endlessly fascinating. And and uh, is thank you. Is there anything uh, for people who are interested in it that you'd point them to? Any new work or or any uh, new popular works based? Well, on your... I, you know, I if you I I did do a TED talk. So if you want a 16-minute version of it, you can just go to TED.com and uh, watch the TED Talk. Or I have a website at University of California, Irvine, that has all kinds of articles, um, both my uh, scientific publications and also a, a journalistic coverage of the scientific work. Fantastic. I, I've seen the TED Talk, and it, it, it really is wonderful, so I, I definitely recommend it. Well, oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for taking okay, the time, Okay, well, nice Elizabeth. talking with you, Adam. Thank you so much to Elizabeth Loftus for coming on the show. I don't know who I am anymore, so I'll consider that a successful podcast. And that was Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks. Our producer is Shara Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment if you are so inclined. Once again... Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back. People tweet at me every day. Is the show coming back? Yes, it is. And the first episode will premiere on August 23rd. We got 14 big episodes coming for you this fall. August 23rd, they start. Don't miss them. And once again, you can find clips and full episodes of the show at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.